you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. Amen. One of the things that I love about um, this place, this family, is the fact that there's freedom to worship in this place. And and so for those of you, I think for those of you that have been here for a while, you kind of see that, that there's freedom to worship. There's a freedom to express that worship. And whether you're raising your hands, you're giving a shout, whatever it may be, because uh, there's something so amazing that happens when we worship God. Number one, He is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. And we even see that all throughout the Bible, people dancing and singing to God. And there's nothing weird about that. And that's what I love about this place. I love worshiping with you guys because there is that freedom to do that. And so if you're here for the first time or you've been here just a couple of times, just so you know, too, there is freedom in this house to worship God. Um, so with that said, today we're going to be, be wrapping up the series that we've been in for a few weeks now called Why Community Groups. That's the series name. And through this series, we've been diving into this question, Why Community Groups, uh, to kind of help us understand what's the importance behind this. Why is this so uh, significant? Again, why community groups, right? In anticipation for the community group launch that's coming up in just over a week. Um, it's actually going to be the week after Easter, which, by the way, is next Sunday. That's when these groups are launching. So it's, it's right there, right around the corner. Uh, please be praying for these groups. I forgot to work uh, in them and through them in big ways. Um, and I said this during the announcements, been saying this a lot through this series especially. Um, if you've not signed up, please make sure to sign up before you leave. You can do that uh, because we've got sign-up sheets at both exits. So regardless of the exit that you go out of, you'll be able to sign up. If you have questions, ask us. Um, for those of you, kind of a side note here, for those of you that um, have already signed up, if you've not gotten a call text, email, something from your group leader or host. You should be getting that uh, call, text, whatever from uh, your group leader or host this week, okay? Uh, so just be kind of on the lookout for that. If you don't receive any, any kind of contact information, any call, anything uh, by this coming Friday, please let me know because I want to make sure that, that you get taken care of, okay? Um, so, uh, so yeah, again, just be, please be pray- praying for this. I'm excited about it. Uh, and with that said, as we've been diving into this series, Why Community Groups? One of the big things um, that we've really been diving into is the fact that we are not meant to do life alone. That's what we've been looking at, the fact that we're not meant to do life alone. And each week through this series, we've been looking at why that is from a different vantage point, a different perspective. And today we're going to be looking at it from the vantage point, from the perspective of Jesus. Because when we read the gospel accounts, we clearly see, listen, that Jesus is, did not do life alone. Jesus did life surrounded by other people. And as our big idea states, if Jesus didn't do life alone, then guys, we shouldn't either. We shouldn't either. Before we dive any deeper into this, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this this family of believers. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship your name. Jesus, because of what you've done for us. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that you would work that miracle of salvation in their life that only you can. I pray that you would help to help us to see the importance of doing life with you and with your people. I pray that we don't just come in here and experience worship and hear a sermon and, and then go away Uh, just going about our lives as if nothing has happened, no transformation, no response. I pray that you help us to respond to this, to what you're you're wanting to say to us. 
I pray that you help us to engage in these groups and, and grow in these groups, not just to engage, just to, to go there again, another check in the box, but to actually grow closer to you and closer to your people. And I want to pray specifically for this launch, for these groups individually, collectively, for this ministry. I pray, God, that you would just bless this ministry. Grow us individually as a church as a whole. I pray that you help us to be your hands and feet to this community that needs you so desperately around us. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, today we're going to be doing something a little different. All right. I want to give you kind of the heads up there. We're going to be doing something a little different. And what I mean by that is typically on a Sunday morning, um, what we do is we kind of dive deep into a text, like a certain text. It might be a couple of verses or like a whole chapter. Sometimes it's a couple of chapters. Um, and we really kind of dissect that text. But today what we're going to be doing in, is really kind of diving into a broader topic. All right. And that topic is um, how Jesus did life and ministry kind of as a whole, how he did life and ministry. And more specifically, the context from which Jesus did his life and his ministry from, okay? And so to kick this off, I, I want to ask you a question, and I need a little participation, okay? So here's my question for you. What is one of the first things that Jesus did when he launched his ministry? And I'll give you a little hint. It had something to do with some other guys. What, what was that? What did he do? Chose his disciples. That's it. That's it. He called the disciples. Another way of saying this is he established a community. He established a community. That's one of the first things that Jesus did when he launched his ministry was to establish a community. More specifically, it was a small group community. Check this out. We see a picture of this in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. It says, during those days, he, talking about Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose, check this out, don't, don't miss this part, he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. I want to pause right there in the middle of this text because I want you to see something. Don't, don't miss the fact that Jesus chose these guys. All right? He chose them individually, but then also collectively as this small group of 12. This wasn't an accident. He didn't randomly just wind up with 12 people like, okay, I guess we got 12 now. That's not what happened. He individually and also collectively chose 12, this small group of 12 on purpose. Let's keep on going. Verse 14. It says, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, the 12 disciples. So I've got another question for you, all right? Here's my question. Once Jesus established this small group of community of 12, what did he do with them? What was it that he did with them? What, what, are, what are a couple things that kind of come to mind? They did life with them. You got it spot on. There we go. You didn't have to guess. Yes, he did life together. They did life together. They did everything together. Jesus did life, ministry, everything with these guys, and he did it on a consistent basis. And hear me, Jesus lived out. He modeled things like discipleship, evangelism, outreach. He modeled these things and so many other things from, primarily from that context of this small group of 12. It's something that we have to understand is, listen, this was Jesus, Right, this, this was Jesus. It's not like Jesus, you know, just uh, he didn't have anybody else to choose from. 
Right? It's not like he just randomly wound up. It's like, okay, we got 12 guys. I guess well, we got some fishermen over here. And who's this dude? A tax collector, Matthew, man. And nobody likes tax collectors. I'm stuck with these dudes. What, what am I supposed to do with these guys? It's like, all right, guys, I just, I just, we're just going to keep on going. Follow me, and we'll figure this out as we're going. Like, that's not what happened, all right? Jesus intentionally, again, chose these men individually, but then also collectively as 12. And he did some of his most intimate life and ministry with these men, not by accident. In fact, when you read the gospel accounts, there's one part uh, in the gospels where it tells us that 72 people, 72 of Jesus' disciples were sent out by him at one point, two by two to the surrounding communities to do ministry. 72 is a lot more than 12. And again, it's, it's not that Jesus only had 12 people to work with. All right, He had a lot more than that. He intentionally chose this. And it wasn't just one or two. It wasn't just one or two, right? The, so this idea, you know, like, you know, you and Jesus and, and, and that's it. You, Jesus, and like maybe your wife, your spouse or something. Like that's all that you need. Listen to me. In love, that's not all you need. That's not all you need, right? And it wasn't like 30 or 50 or 100 or whatever, right? It, it was 12. It was 12. And something I want to hit on too is a lot of times we can, we can kind of start to fall into this Lone Ranger type of mentality. You guys know what I'm talking about? A Lone Ranger type of mentality. What Jesus did, how he modeled doing life together intimately with this group of 12 people, it completely flies in the face of that Lone Ranger mentality. That idea that, hey, it's me and Jesus against the world. I, I got my Bible. I got my relationship with Jesus. I'm good. I'm set, right? I don't need anybody else. And what we do a lot of times is we start to associate that Lone Ranger mentality with people that are outside of the church, like people that claim to be Christians but don't go to church. But hear me, in love, that Lone Ranger mentality has started incorporating its way, has for a while now been incorporating its way into our churches. And not just the fact that it's in our churches. Listen to me, it's rampant. It's all over the place. I would actually say that the majority of us as followers of Christ, that would say that we're followers of Christ in the church, not just in victory, but, but across America, in some way have adopted this lone ranger type of mentality. It's me and Jesus against the world. Because what we'll do is we'll come to church on Sunday mornings. You know, usually it's like a couple of minutes before the service starts, right? And, you know, maybe spend like a minute or so. Hey, how you doing? Usually the same kind of conversations. How you doing? How was your week, right? And shaking hands. We, we sing some songs together, meet and greet, a little bit more shaking hands, listen to a sermon, and then we jet afterwards. And the vast majority of the rest of the week, what do we do? We do life alone. You know, maybe with our family, but that's about it. This Lone Ranger type of mentality. But again, listen to me. Jesus was not a Lone Ranger. Jesus chose to do life surrounded by 12 other men. And he didn't have to do that. He could have been a Lone Ranger. He could have just decided to do it by himself or, or with maybe one or two other people. Or he could have gone the other extreme and said, okay, I'm going to get like 100 people or a few thousand people and do life together. But he didn't. He chose 12. And it kind of generates this question, like, why? Out of everything that Jesus could have done, why did he choose to do this? Life together in this small group community of 12. And for one, there's kind of a theological implication behind this, because you think about the 12 tribes of Judah, right? And there's, there's 12 disciples, so there's something to that theologically, yes, but then I think there's something else to this, too. 
Because what happens is when you're in a small group community like that, somewhere, uh, studies show around 8 to 15 people, something like that, similar to Jesus and the 12, it creates this kind of environment, one of the best kinds of environment to really uh, uh, foster and sustain these deep, intimate relationships, just like we see with Jesus and the 12. There's something about these small group communities. And again, if Jesus didn't do life alone, then in love, guys, if we're going to follow in his steps, that's what we're doing, right? We're Christ followers, right? Following in the steps of Jesus. Then, guys, don't you think that we should also surround ourselves with other people instead of trying to do life alone? And if you're here today, if you're, if you're struggling with this a little bit, maybe you're hearing this and we've been through this series and you're like, look, I, I get it. I get this is important. I get that in the perfect world, it'd be good to kind of plug in to a small group like this. I get what you're saying, Jesus, model this, okay? But listen, man, you don't know, you don't know my life. You, I am busy. I work a lot. I've got kids. You know, I got all these things going on. I just don't have the time or the energy for this. If that is you, all right, and, and you're kind of struggling with that a little bit, I, I want to I hit on a couple of things, okay? I, I want to say two things to you. And I just want, there's a lot of different things that we could say, but just two things. And I want you to listen and please think through this, okay? Just really kind of think through this. First of all, community groups or small groups like this, overwhelmingly, by far, are one of the best places for us to foster these kind of deep, intimate uh, relationships that are that not only to foster them, but then also to sustain them with God's people but then also with Jesus Christ himself. There are also some of the best places by far for us to really dive into the word of God together, to really learn about the word of God, to pray together, to fulfill all these uh, commands that we see in the New Testament that we talked about last week, to love one another, to do life together, to care for one another, all those one another commands. One of the best places for us to practically live out this, uh, the Great Commission, being disciples to make other disciples, right? and evangelism, all these other things, one of the best places by far for us to practically be able to do these things on a consistent basis. And so if you're struggling with this idea like, listen, I'm busy, I don't have enough time, I don't have the energy to plug in, what I would say in love, in love, we don't have the time not to. We do not have the time and the energy not to plug in in some way to a small group community kind of like Jesus displayed with the 12. In fact, I would actually say that that mindset, this idea that we don't have the time or the energy to plug into a group like this, will be very similar to somebody saying, hey, look, you know what? I, I don't make enough money at my job to put a gas in my tank to get to work, right? So I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna be able to get to work today because I don't have the money to put gas in my tank to get to work. By the way, the place that we can actually make more money at. Listen, I'm no genius, but that kind of mentality, I don't think it's going to be very long where that kind of like backfires a little bit, right? Like if we don't go to the place where we can actually make more money, what's going to happen? We're not going to make more money. So it's not going to be, we're not going to be worrying about like gas money to put in the tank. We're going to be worrying at that point, somebody coming like the bank coming to repo the daggone car or putting food on the table for ourselves and our family. You see what I'm saying? What I'm trying to get across is this. There are things in life that we have to prioritize. And if we don't prioritize them, listen to me, they will come back to bite us in the butt. They will come back to haunt us. And in a very similar way, listen, 
If we have this mentality like, you know, I, I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy for that, right? And we don't put ourselves intentionally into environments where our spiritual well-being can be fostered, nurtured, and grown on a consistent basis. If we do not do that, if we say, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy for that, then listen to me. In love, we should not be surprised when the struggles in life that we deal with start mounting up higher and higher and higher until things in our life, probably several things in our life, start to cave in around us. Things like our marriage or other relationships, maybe with your kids or maybe your job because other struggles that you haven't been dealing with and you haven't been surrounding yourself by other people to help get that accountability, they start mounting up and it affects your job, your workplace or or other issues, maybe struggles like depression. Like, you know what, I, I struggle with this, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna tell anybody. I don't have time to deal with that. I'm gonna stuff that under the rug or the alcohol. Or all these other, I'm just gonna stuff it under the rug. I don't have time to deal with these things. But what happens? They, they don't stay under the rug, do they? What do they do? They start growing. They start multiplying. It's like that snowball effect. They get bigger and bigger and bigger because we stuff them under the rug thinking they're just going to stay there. It's not a big deal. I don't have time to deal with that because we don't set up this accountability system. It's encouraging. We're not putting ourselves intentionally in environments where we can be, uh, our spiritual well-being can be nurtured and fostered and grown until these things mount up bigger and bigger and bigger and start eating away at other parts of our life. And so in love, again, if you're here today and you're struggling with this mentality, like, man, I don't have time. I don't have energy to plug into anything like this. Listen, in love, I would say that you don't have the time and the energy not to. None of us do. And the second thing that I want to mention to you briefly is this. If you're struggling again with that idea, man, I don't have the time. I don't have, I don't have the energy to do this, right? Something you might want to think about is, is when Jesus established this small group community of the twelve. He didn't just establish it, he also led it. And he didn't just lead it, he did life with these people. He wasn't like from the outside looking in, leading them. He's like in there with them, surrounding himself with these guys and doing life and ministry with them intimately. right? And he didn't just do that like every once in a while. He did it every single day, the entire day, every day, day to day to day to day. We're just talking about like once a week. He did it every day. But hear me. He did all of that. You think you're busy. He did all of that while he was in the middle of saving the world. Listen, in love, we may think that we have excuses. But in love, listen to me, we don't really have any good excuses. And we cannot afford, we don't have the time and the energy not to plug in in some way. So these kind of small group communities that Jesus displays in the gospel. And I want to say just kind of a quick side note. I know a lot of times, a lot of times there's not, it's not an excuse. A lot of times we're in situations, maybe like a work situation, where you're like, man, look, I literally cannot do this every week. I'm out of town some weeks, things like that. Like, like sometimes there's situations like that. And so, so what I would tell you, and I've said this before, what I would tell you is, listen to me, don't let that be a reason. Don't let that become an excuse as to why you do not plug in at all. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference in plugging in at least a little bit and then not plugging in at all. There's a big difference, and we need to kind of understand that, right, and submit to that. And, and here's the thing. If you're struggling with, listen, I don't even know if it would be worth it. I can't even calm that much. Listen, if you're struggling with that, and, and not as an excuse but legitimately, then what I would say is, listen, once or twice a, a month, 
is multiple times better than not doing it at all. In fact, if you only do it once, once a month, how many times is that? That's 12 times better than not doing it at all, okay? So listen, let's, don't make those excuses. Well, I can't plug in. This is, again, something that Jesus modeled, and Jesus modeled this, doing life together, surrounding himself in a small group community. Then, guys, how much more do you think that we should be doing the same? And doing life with God's people. And we talk about doing life together. Let's talk about that for a minute. What does that actually mean? What does that look like? Because when I talk about Jesus doing life together with these other people, listen, I'm not talking about him just like hanging out with these guys. You know, gr- grabbing pizza, um, you know, and some Cokes or something, like, uh, and watching the game with these guys and kicking back playing video games or something. Not that those things existed, but... And it, it wasn't like that, that was all that they did. Yeah, sure, they, they got together, they hung out, right? They, they would tell jokes. It wasn't serious all the time. They would tell jokes. They would, they would do life together and eating and, 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 and join each other's company laughing. But listen to me, it didn't just stop there. It wasn't just the fact that they spent a lot of time together. It was that they shared some of the most intimate moments of their life together, intimate parts of their life and ministry with one another. Jesus shared it with them, and they shared it with Jesus and with each other. So when it came, for example, to things like Jesus' sermons, when Jesus would, would preach sermons, or, or, or he would give some kind of an example or a parable, after the sermons, the, the parables, the disciples didn't have to guess what Jesus was trying to say. Why is that? It's because Jesus would tell them afterwards, hey, by the way, when I said this, this is what I meant. And if they had questions, guess what? They could just ask him because they did life with him. And they knew more about Jesus, intimate parts about Jesus himself than anybody else. Who he is, who he was and still is, the Messiah. They had that conversation, Jesus and the 12. And what his mission is, why he came. Secrets about the kingdom of God that at that point in time, nobody else knew. These men knew because they did life with him. That's why when we read a couple of weeks ago the book of Acts, one of the things that that first church and even we should be doing on a consistent basis is diving into, gathering around the apostles' teaching. Who were the apostles? Well, primarily, that's the 12. And why is that? It's because they knew more about Jesus, intimate things about Jesus, about the mission, about the gospel, about the secrets of the kingdom of God than any one else that's why because they were in this small group community literally doing life together with jesus and an extremely intimate picture that we get of this um, them doing life together with jesus it's actually seen with three of of the men that were in this group because there were kind of stages of intimacy in this and when i'm not i'm not going to go too deep into that that's a sermon for another day but there were, there were kind of stages of intimacy with this. He shared everything with these 12, but there were three, Peter, James, and John, that he shared even, even more intimate things, conversations, experiences, secrets with, more so than anyone else. And one of those is actually seen as something called the transfiguration. And I want us to kind of dive into this and, and look at what happened during this scene, the transfiguration. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured, catch this, in front of them. 
And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launder on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. These, these dudes have no clue. They're like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. They're standing right there seeing all this. Verse 7, a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Man, talk about intimate. Like, could you imagine being there on that mountain with Jesus, experiencing this, like a few feet away, seeing all of this with your own eyes, going up this mountain wondering, hey, what, what are we doing up here? And then all of a sudden, bam, Jesus is transformed. His, white, his clothes are whiter than you've ever seen, a wider shade than you ever even knew existed, and he's glowing. Moses, Elijah just appear talking to Jesus, a voice from heaven. Obviously, it's the Father. They knew that, saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Like, are you kidding me? That is crazy. I mean, these guys were going up. They're like, what? No, they, didn't, they didn't even know what to do. That's how intimate this was. And during the transfiguration, what Jesus was essentially doing when he invited them up, because he knew exactly what he was doing. This wasn't an accident. He just randomly got up there. Hey, I'm just going to transform. You know, that sounds like a good idea. Jesus did this on purpose. Why? It's because when he did this, through his action, through the transfiguration with these three, he was inviting them and essentially saying to them, hey, this is who I am. Exactly who I am. See me for who I am as I am. That's what he was saying to these three men through that transfiguration. Jesus was being as intimate and transparent with these men as anyone could possibly be. And then after the transfiguration, check out what Jesus told them. This is verses 9 through 10. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, after it's happened, he ordered them uh, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man, talking about himself, had, catch this, risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves questioning what rising from the dead meant. In other words, Jesus shared uh, this extremely intimate, one of the most intimate moments with him, extremely transparent, as, as transparent as he could possibly be. He shared this with them, but only with them. No one else. And he even told them not to tell anyone else until what? We just read it, until what? Until after the resurrection. Until after the resurrection, then you can tell someone. So we share this intimate, transparent moment only with them. Told them not to say anything else until after the resurrection. But don't miss the fact that he just straight up told them he's going to rise from the dead. Don't miss that. Okay, And this isn't the only time. Jesus literally told his disciples, not just the three, but the twelve. He told them several times that he was going to be killed and that he was going to rise from the dead in three days. He said that multiple times to them. Like, and these guys didn't get it. We even see it in this scene. They're like, man, I wonder what he meant. He's going to rise from the dead. Was it like a metaphor for something? Like, no, dude, he's literally telling you he's going to rise from the dead. Right? They didn't get it. It went over their heads. and We shouldn't judge him. We're probably doing the same thing because it's before the resurrection happened, right? But he's straight up, to, what we need to see is regardless of their response and the fact that it went over their head, even though he couldn't have been more blunt about it, 
Regardless of that, hear me, Jesus held nothing from these men. He straight up told them he was as transparent as he could have been with them. See me for who I am, exactly who I am, as I am. This is my plan. This is what's going to happen. He held nothing from these guys. And something else that's amazing that he shared with these men is some of the last moments of his life. And I want you to think about that. If you knew, because Jesus knew this, right? Like the crucifixion, being taken by the guards, all that stuff. Jesus knew what was going to happen. This isn't taken by surprise. He knew this before. So if you knew that you only have a few moments left before that's going to happen and you're going to be crucified, you're going to be killed. Who would you spend those last moments of your life with? We know exactly who Jesus spent those last moments with. He spent it with a small group of 12. Where was it? It was in the upper room during the last supper. Some of the last moments of his life. Some of those intimate moments that he shared with those men. And we talked about it last week. He gave them the new commandment. Just before he was taken by those, shoulder, those soldiers and then later crucified, dead. And then the very very last moments of his life, literally leading up to the point when he was taken by the soldiers. He takes his disciples and they go up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where it's located on that mount. And when they get there, he takes three of them. We see this in Mark. He takes three of them, the three that were there in the transfiguration, right? Uh, James, Peter, and John. Takes them deeper into that garden with them in those moments. And hear me, the fact that Jesus surrounded himself with this small group of men and then goes even deeper with these three men in those moments, particularly in those moments of his life, it screams to us the importance of doing life together with other people. And not just that, but how important this really is to Jesus. So what I want us to do, I'm going to read this to you. It's not going to be up on your screen. I just want you to lean in and listen to this and really pay attention to what happened in this garden scene with Jesus and this group that he did life with. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 44. It says, he, being Jesus, went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, so a stone's throw, he's not far at all from these people, knelt down and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, and don't miss those words, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. By the way, in verse 44, when it says that word anguish, being in anguish, what that actually means, what that translates to is is gut-wrenching, pain and horror. That's what that means. He was in gut-wrenching pain 
and horror in that garden as he's crying out to the Father. And he wasn't in gut-wrenching pain and horror because he knew um, uh, the physical uh, torture and death, one of the worst deaths known to man that he was about to experience. That's not why he was in gut-wrenching pain and horror, okay? And yes, it was one of the worst deaths known to man. The torture was going to be brutal. But that's not what he was in horror about. That was actually only a small fraction of what Jesus actually went through. Like when we watch these movies, like the, the Passion, for example, and we see the physical torture that he went to, and it's like, oh my goodness, he did. Listen to me, that is a tiny, tiny fraction of what Jesus went through. That is not why Jesus was in gut-wrenching pain and horror. It was because he was about to bear the sins of the entire world. Every single person, past, present, future. And all of the sins, past, present, and future, all on his shoulders in those moments. And as he did, he would experience separation from the Father, which is literally the epitome of hell on the cross. That is why Jesus was in gut-wrenching pain and horror. This was his worst nightmare. As he's screaming, crying out to the Father in that garden. And then the text tells us that as he's crying out, praying more fervently, that he began to sweat these drops of blood. And it kind of generates this question, like, what is that? What, it's, hard, it's hard to picture that or imagine what that is and kind of wrap our heads around that because I don't know about you, but I've never experienced that. I've never seen anybody else experience that, like someone uh, like literally sweating drops of blood. And, and I had a hard time with that, kind of wrestled with it. I would read that, and I'd be like, man, that sounds really bad. And I just kind of keep on going until I heard a story a while back um, that completely just rocked my world as I read this text now. It's a story about a little boy, a little three-year-old boy that was found by his parents um, his lifeless body was found at the bottom of a pool. And what happened was these parents were uh, getting the kids out. They were getting them in the car, getting ready to leave. And as they're all gathered together in that car, they realized that their little three-year-old boy wasn't there. So they're like, well, where is he at? And they start looking around, and they can't find him, getting a little more frantic. They go to the backyard where they have a pool. And to their horror, they see their little boy, their three-year-old son, lying seemingly lifeless at the bottom of that pool, unconscious. And so the father jumps in. He gets to the bottom of the pool. He scoops up his, his little boy's seemingly lifeless body, brings him to the surface. They call 911, and by the grace of God, when the paramedics arrived, they were able to revive the boy. They, they were able to save him by the grace of God. But when they took him back to the hospital, and they were, the doctors and the nurses are checking on him, and the father is sitting there next to his little boy, just looking at him intently and probably thanking God that he is alive at this point in time. And the father starts to notice something happening with his little boy in his face. Because his face is like these little purple bumps start to kind of like come out and erupt all over his face. And the father doesn't know what's going on. And so he goes and he asks, he's like, he asked the doctor, hey, what, what is this? Why is my son's face doing this? Why are these little pump, purple bumps, like, you know, erupting on his face like this? And the doctor begins to describe to him, sir, listen, while your son was at the bottom of that pool, he was under some, so much turmoil and so much stress at the bottom of that pool. 
He was most likely screaming at the top of his lungs with every ounce of energy that he had, so much so that the blood vessels in his face began to burst. And so as the father looked at his son, and he saw these purple bumps coming out along his face, he was seeing the results of that gut-wrenching pain and horror that his little boy experienced at the bottom of that pool. Very similar to how Jesus in this garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was crying out to his father, Father, with every ounce of energy that he had, screaming most likely even at the top of his lungs, violently praying, so much so that the blood vessels in his face erupt and he starts sweating drops of blood. Because listen to me, that's why when we read in Hebrews, it tells us that we do not serve, we do not uh, follow a high priest, a savior that doesn't know our agony, doesn't know pain, doesn't know suffering. He knows these things better than we could ever possibly fathom because he has experienced them himself. He's experienced them. And I want you to think about this for a moment. As Jesus is experiencing this horror in that garden, and he's going through this pain, what did he choose to do in those moments? Some of the last moments of his life, going through this grief, going through this horror that we couldn't even imagine. What did he do? Did he go and like do the Lone Ranger thing? Did he go spend time with his family or his mom or something? No. He surrounded himself with that small group of 12 and then went off with a small group of three. He intentionally chose to surround himself with those people. Listen to me. This is what we cannot miss. Jesus did not go through grief, turmoil, pain, and suffering alone. He did not go through those things alone. So why is it that so many of us think that we can or that we should go through pain, grief, suffering, suffering, struggles, and the list goes on alone? Why do you think we think that we can or that we should when not even Jesus did that? Jesus surrounded himself with other people in these moments. And guys, if Jesus surrounded himself with this small group of people in the good times in life, but then also in the bad times. If Jesus did this, then hear me, how much more so should we? How much more so should we? Because this is why doing life together in a small group community, it, it shouldn't be looked at as like this extracurricular activity or something that we just do if, if it fits into our schedule or if we have time. Doing life with Jesus and with his people should be woven into the fabric of our everyday lives. And when it is, when we honestly live this out, life together with Jesus and with his people, in this type of environment, that's when we can experience this life-changing transformation that the disciples experience in their lives. And that's when we will actually be able to produce the most effective ministry in the community around us. Just like we see with Jesus in the 12 and the Gospels. 
So as the worship team comes up, I'm gonna encourage them to come on up. What I wanna encourage you guys to do is don't just leave here today with this thought, you know what, okay, I, I, did, I did the Sunday morning routine. You know, I, I came, I, I listened to a sermon, I feel better, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on and I'm gonna keep on going about my life. Listen, we are called to respond to this. That's what God wants us to do. Come and worship him because he is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be worshiped. And there's something amazing that happens when we come together and worship him. But then as we hear this message and what God is trying to say to us, he's trying to say something to us because he wants to mold us and shape us more and the more into the image of his son, Jesus. And so I want to encourage all of us to respond in some way. And the first way that we can respond, if and we say this every Sunday, if you're somebody that's never responded to this message of Jesus in my place, if you're somebody that does not know Jesus, don't have that personal relationship with him, please, I want to encourage you to respond to receive that salvation that Jesus Christ died to give you. The way we do that, it, honestly, it's easy because Jesus has already done the work in our place. It's just that repentance bit, turning away from sin, turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot save myself. You are the only one that can save me. So please, Jesus, save me. Save my life. Come into my life and make me new. And the next response is baptism. If you've never made one or even both of those responses, please, I want to encourage you, don't wait today. Jesus has already done the hard work. And for the rest of us, what that response looks like is really diving into these groups, doing life with one another. And hear me, it is so hard, next to impossible, to honestly do life together with the body of Christ unless we honestly plug into small group communities, kind of like we're launching here soon. And you're going to have the opportunity to do that before you leave today. Again, we'll have sign-up sheets, but if you have questions, ask those questions. But as we stand together, we're going to sing. I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and stand. I want to encourage every single one of us to respond in some way. Don't leave here today without responding to what God is speaking to you. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is, um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. 
um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life, God, and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, there comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, we're, we, we're, uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you've stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Uh, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.